Hello, hello. Um, we're here with Boo Srinivasan, the author of Americana, a 400-year history of American capitalism. Hey, Teddy, thank you. Um, let's, let's start with an easy question. That's not good. Um, is capitalism working? <laughs> That's an easy question. Yeah, start, start easy. Well, it certainly is. I mean, it, it, if you think about India and China, let's say 1981, 1982, right? These were third world countries, you had, I'll tell you a story, when I came to this country in 1984, for instance, the first thing that happened when I was in third grade was the famine in Ethiopia, okay, you had starving children, and I remember looking at the TV images and I thought, that's not all that different from India sometimes, you know, there may be one or two calories above starvation, but certainly that easily could happen there. And so if you think about, you know, the 25-year run of capitalism since then, certainly you don't have starvation in China today. And you certainly, you know, in terms of calorie consumption in India, you certainly don't have that. So both those countries, a billion-plus people in each of those countries have moved up the food chain. And what is the catalyst for that? And you certainly can say, well, it's been free markets, it's been economic liberalization. Um, both, you can look, look at the Deng Xiaoping reforms in China that, that catalyzed that, and you can look at uh, Manmohan Singh's reforms in the early 90s in India that was a catalyst for that, as a catalyst for you know, the economic liberalization in India. So you feel, like, you feel like globally when you look at the evidence? Certainly, yeah. Yeah, just, just so much of the conversation, I mean, I know, I know you think a lot about the way that capitalism, and you write about this way, that capitalism is sort of perceived over time. Like so much of the conversation, and maybe this is just... You know, people focusing on negativity is driven by like what's gone wrong, right? The fact that like there still is someone who is poor and hungry in India, you know, or capitalism's fault, or there still is inequality in the United States. Someone needs to be blamed, or some system needs to be blamed, and ends up being you know the big bad capitalism. Um, but I, I do feel like lots of the uh, progress, because it's slow, because it's often you know anonymized just doesn't really get talked about. Well, that's very much a Western conceit in terms of the backlash against capitalism. Certainly in India, you don't see protests against capitalism. In China today, you're not, if they could have full-scale protests, you wouldn't see people protesting capitalism. They've seen very strong rises in standards of living. So in India, in China, the number of cars on the road in China, number of cars on the road in India, these are things that are just, you know, grown exponentially in the last, you know, 25 years, very significant growth. Um, education standards, you know, literacy rates. Um, so number of things, um, wage levels for programmers in India in just 20 years. And I, originally it was a labor force for solving the Y2K problem or QA. Now it's moved up the value chain. Same thing in China as well. So I think both those countries certainly have seen these tremendous dividends from capitalism. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to get to other parts of, you know, the, the backlash against capitalism in the West. Sure. But, you know, you can look at the vast numbers of people on Earth, billions of people, that's been, the baseline has increased due to free markets, in my view. So it's your book, which um, Mark Sester says is a favorite. He wouldn't, we tried backstage getting to pressure him, to try to pressure him on, to rank uh, this art of the deal in the Bible, and um, this comes out on top. I wouldn't have shown up unless it was the, the favorite. The favorite. So the article is that on me. So, um, so it is a history of the last 400 years of capitalism, uh, American capitalism. I want, I want to dive in a little bit later on into sort of the differences between countries on, uh, across the globe on this. Uh, but sticking with kind of the where we're all ch- we are where we are today, and we'll kind of go backwards in time as we talk. Um, do you feel like capitalism 
is going to survive another 400 years, at least in its current iteration. Um, I know this is I'm not asking you to, you know, predict 24, or 22. No, no, certainly. I mean, it's a valid question, but it, th that's the whole thing. It's never had one iteration. That's the whole thing about capitalism is the way that I describe it in the book, that it's always something that's had lots and lots of permutations. You know, certainly capitalism and the iteration that had slavery in the United States, that yeah. didn't survive. You know, you always have twists and turns continually. You've had the clashes of democracy and the clashes of free markets. You've had consumer protection laws. You've had labor protection. You've had um, regulatory frameworks. It's always a work in progress. So to say it's current iteration, of course not. I mean, there's a new iteration five years from now, ten years from now. You can think about little things like marijuana, for instance, mm. right? I mean, you can, it never exists in one iteration. It's always a constant um, change. And there are other inflection points as well. I mean, you can have a world war that changes the trajectory of what American capitalism means. You know, you have defense contractors where you didn't have, you know, um, permanent defense contractors necessarily prior to World War II. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, the, you know, as you describe um, kind of the history of capitalism over time. It feels like, at least a simplistic reading of it, is that the world is getting more capitalistic, right? That, you know, China and, and India, you know, did not have free market economies. Now they're, you know, having more. I mean, Russia, whatever you want to call Russia now, it is more capitalistic than it was, you know, 40 years ago. Um, I, I just wonder if you think that, you know, the world is inexorably going toward greater, greater capitalism, or if, you know, in 2122 or 2222, or whatever year this is, 2023, 2023, 2023, if it's conceivable that there could be you know, a country that we currently think of as capitalistic that goes back in time. That regresses. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, even the iteration of Chinese capitalism, a lot of it is state-controlled capitalism. So if you have huge infrastructure spending, that's certainly state-controlled capitalism. You can still have economic actors. You can still have creative thinkers, entrepreneurial energy that looks to execute state-directed initiatives. But that's certainly not full free market capitalism as we would think of it in the West. But same thing, same thing in this country. I think that you could see certainly a little bit of nationalism now. You, you certainly see their, their calls and clamoring for trade protection. And, and that's a retraction and a retrenchment um, in very real ways. So certainly, I think that it's, it's an obvious contraction, expansion constantly. It's, not, it's a much more nuanced uh, answer that I have to give you to that question, because I, I don't think it's necessarily one trajectory. I don't think the markets are necessarily liberalizing more and more and more going forward. T take, a model, take something like uh, building the Model S, right? Okay. Tesla. Uh, in, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, it needed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of capital to buy a factory and to build the Model S. And that came from a Department of Energy loan. So is that free market capitalism or is that state-directed capitalism or state-subsidized capitalism? And you certainly wouldn't say it's free market capitalism. Right. The government is an actor. Um, let's, let's talk about kind of the history of the United States, which is uh, the, the meat uh, of your uh, reporting and, and history. Um, you talk a lot about the, the ways in which capitalism was, was interwoven into the uh, founding story of the United States right. in both ways, good and bad. For instance, you mentioned slavery. Uh, a couple minutes ago, but you also talk about, you know, the Mayflower, for instance, and, and sort of the, the founding origin story of the country. Can you sort of explain at a, at a high level um, the ways in which capitalism, like, shaped the United States? I, I guess from, not to ask a huge question as we have 16 minutes, but, but from, like, 1607 or 1620, you know, when uh, the country is founded to, let's say, the end of the Civil War. Um, so just, just a short question. Just 240 on years. years. If you can do it in like 60 seconds or so, um, just give, give me a sense of the ways in which capitalism 
shape the country's first half? Well, this, I mean, again, you know, I, I'd have to go into my own roots into this country. So we left a democracy. India's a democracy. We have free elections, you know, free speech in India. So lots of the times that someone leaves a democracy, especially Indians, we're not coming here for political freedoms. We're very clearly coming here for economic freedoms or economic prosperity, mm-hmm. and that's the inducement to come to this country. Leave your cuisine, leave your culture, leave your religion, leave your family behind, all of these things. So I wanted to trace back how far back in the past was that the primary motivation, and immediately you can start, tell, uh, you can start seeing that even the Mayflower, how it was financed, how Virginia was a company before it was a colony, and how were those things financed? And it was financed by private actors looking to finance these settlers, looking to participate in some economic dividend from settling the new world. Uh, you know, for instance, the, the Mayflower, it, this is the, the story that kind of triggered the, my, my concept for the book, it's that the Mayflower was financed by a group called the Merchant Adventurers, you know, private investors financing the voyage for the pilgrims. And the pilgrims were living in Holland at the time. They weren't even living in England. You know, they, mm-hmm. they had conceived this venture. And you look at what the financing mechanism was. You know, seven years, they had to serve as a collective. At the end of the seven years, they get basically a share of the enterprise, the dividends of the enterprise. And so you can almost look at some of these financial terms that they had for the Mayflower's venture very similar to liquidation preferences, constructs for dividends. Um, So if you look at that and you think, okay, American mythology is taught in schools generally is about these beleaguered pilgrims uh, coming over to the United States to find religious freedom, and you realize, well, how did a bunch of religious pilgrims finance a large ship? And that's the first story. And then you get to that story and you start you know, unpeeling the onion and you get answers. Yeah. How about slavery? I mean, just when you think about the interplay between capitalism and slavery, I mean, obviously um, the same forces that, you know, encouraged folks to uh, come to the United States also encouraged, you know, well, who I mean, were not from the United States to come to the United States forcibly. I mean, the world, those were subject to some capitalist impulses but, as well. well. Without question. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when you say free market capitalism, I mean, is El Chapo free market capitalist? <laughs> you know, um, he is. I mean, certainly. So I, I don't think that capitalism by itself curbs its own excesses. I mean, there are moral excesses that, that you know, we've clearly seen with Obviously, slavery is probably the most glaring example, right? The biggest and most glaring example, the original sin for this country. And even then, you can look at these, these various economic variables that took place in, in the early 1600s, before slavery, for instance. It would make more sense to get an indentured servant in the first, you know, 10, 20 years of um, the settled settlements in America. From 1607 to, to 1630, it would make more sense to get an indentured servant, primarily because they died. Mm. So if they die, you don't need to give them their land at the end of the seven years because, you know, they've died. At the same time, if you're paying capital to acquire a slave and they died, you've lost a capital expense. So once some of those factors, those external debts went away, uh, it, it made more sense for people to bring in slaves. So it, it's a morbid economic calculation, but that was one of the things that had catalyzed um, the initial slave growth in the United States. And then you had tobacco, which is immediately this immense crash crop that was discovered to grow very nicely in the Chesapeake region, then later on in, in, uh, in the Carolinas. Uh, and then you find the discovery of cotton, same thing. So you have some of these breakthroughs that, in essence, held slavery on for much longer than it otherwise would have because you had these immense cash crops 
um, you know, that, that could be produced with that type of labor. I guess, how do you square those two things? How do you square, like, the, the, the beauty of capitalism when it comes to, you know, financing the, the Mayflower with sort of the, you know, to put it mildly, the downsides of capitalism? Well, you don't. I mean, I, and I wouldn't characterize it as beauty, any of it, anyway. I mean, I think economic motivations, I mean, there's nothing beautiful or not beautiful about it. It just is. Mm. You know, I think that there's nothing particularly beautiful about somebody wanting to acquire a fortune. I mean, it's certainly, it, it's, it's a phenomenon. But I don't, think that, I don't think you necessarily attribute moral characteristics to it. I certainly don't attribute moral characteristics to, to it. To it being to capitalism, just as... To market forces. I mean, market forces is that anybody will sell anything if there's somebody willing to pay the price for it. Sure. So I think that the, the economic actors within capitalism itself cannot be the ones that regulate itself. I just don't think that that happens. I think, for instance, I'll give you uh, a case in point. This is where the venture capital conference... There's a very large LP that, you know, that went off the rails and, and killed a journalist, right? I mean, oh, Saudi government. Saudi Arabia, yes. okay. So how many people in this hall would turn down a big investment from the PIF, okay? Not very many. A billion-dollar check, two-billion-dollar check, you know, you're going to look the other way. It, it, that's just the way it is. Now, right? So uh, the lights are on. I'm, I'm having trouble seeing. No, you don't. We the, don't need all to, the hands uh, of, of the folks who are I, I just, risking their. There's, uh, there's at least still here, or maybe. <laughs> but, but that that is one of these things. So you can never you can never look at and, and other. You can look at something else. You can look at gambling. So you can look at prohibitions on one thing. The culture changes, and it's you know more permissive. So was the moral sanctimony against, let's say, marijuana, or against gambling, or against something else? You know. Times change, and, and that prohibition no longer exists. So, I, I never think to attribute a moral characteristic to just pure economic motivations. But that said, I think where the beauty in capitalism is is that I think entrepreneurial creativity is a very, very beautiful thing. I think when you have an artist or you have an entrepreneur that wants to do something and they're in their creative form, I think that's brilliant and beautiful. I think. Um, and that there is something very moral to someone wanting to put their life's work there and finding a marketplace for it and not necessarily um, you know, uh, being beholden to patrons and things like that. So I think that there is obviously a, a magic to that. There, without question, there's a magic to entrepreneurialism. There's a magic to creativity. The more of it you have, the better. Um, it, so I think in that, I think there's tremendous beauty to it. Jumping forward to the second 200 years of American history in two minutes. Um, so much of, of the post-Civil War period mm-hmm. seems defined by industrialization, by rising inequality, by you know, the creation of the modern middle class kind of after World War II. Um, uh, let's talk about inequality for, for a second. Um, this moment in 2023 is often you know, kind of hyperbolically compared to the Gilded Age. Um, and it's compared to an era of you know, haves and have-nots when there was this extraordinary wealth creation. You write about you know, families like the Vanderbilts or sort of the other aristocrats of the era. Um, in what ways do you think that comparison is fair, and in what ways do you feel it is not? Well, at that time, the, with the Gilded Age, I, it, well, first, I think it's a more polarized moment now than it was then. Because at that time, the country had just finished with the Civil War. So there was no matter how much political resistance you had to the rise of markets and the rise of capitalism, people could see their standards of living go up very dramatically, mm-hmm. especially from 1865 to 1910. A lot of things happened. So if you take that 45-year span, right, you had indoor plumbing, you had 
the Sears catalog where you had an enormous amount of goods you could buy. You had the movement from farms into the cities. You had uh, the capacity for this country to absorb a million immigrants a year. So 1905, 1906, the first years in history that you had a million immigrants come every single year. So it had the capacity to absorb it. If you look at 1914, when Ford announces immediately that he's going to have the $5 workday to be able to, to you know, uh, to operate his uh, factories at maximum capacity, well, $5 a day was an enormous wage because, because the Model T at that time was about 90 days' worth of labor. It was $450. So for 90 days' worth of labor, an illiterate Lithuanian immigrant could make the equivalent of a car in 1914. That was significant. What's different today is that, in my view, the United States and first world economies cannot keep moving up the value chain in terms of labor. Okay, certain people can, but for instance, I'll give you the comparison. In China, for instance, you can't make t-shirts in China anymore. They've moved up the value chain. In 2000, you could make t-shirts and shoes in China. In 2023, you would make shoes in the Philippines or in Bangladesh, you wouldn't make it in China. The labor costs are too high because they've moved up the value chain. Same thing with in Japan. You used to be able to make shoes there in 1970. You know, the first deal that Phil Knight did with, uh, to bring his shoes into the country was with Onitsuka. They actually made shoes in Japan. They certainly weren't making shoes in Japan in 1990, just 20 years later. The problem with the United States is that you have a very large labor force that's not going to be able to move up the labor food chain. And that's a lot of the political incoherence you're seeing. That's a lot of the economic discontentment you're seeing. And I think that certainly does, I don't think there's a magic solution to that yet. But if I were to give a simplistic answer, that would be it. It's that there is no place for American labor to move up. In, in certain pockets, there are. You know, if you have in San Francisco, where I live, you know, you're certainly seeing people that can make lavish sums of money, developers, engineers that can keep moving up the chain. Right. But not at that working class level. Um, in your history, I was struck by sort of the interplay between capitalism and, I guess, what's called like American exceptionalism. Um, this idea, and you mentioned this kind of when you talk about kind of the myth-making of, of the Mayflower and, you know, frankly, like lots of political rhetoric, you know, describes, you know, the American economy is the greatest economy of all time and rah-rah. Um, to what extent do you think like that's fair, that like this, this story of capitalism is like only possible in America um, versus, you know, us sort of doing it first and, you know, someone else will do it after and maybe someone else will do it better and that's just sort of the way... Life goes. Well, I don't necessarily subscribe to any notions of exceptionalism or anything like that. Okay? I think empires come and go. Great nations, you know, you can take nothing for granted. I mean, if a great football coach talked to you about how their team is exceptional, I'm betting against that team the next season. You know, that's just, you're, you're as and good you, as you, your you next You know a lot about sports betting. I so, certainly do. You, so. you, you're as good as your next year, your next 10 years, your next 25, your next 50 years. And I will say in the United States, there have been tremendous amount of physical resources as well, oil, for instance. Between 1859, when oil was first drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, until 19, the early 1970s, the United States was the largest oil producer on Earth. Mm. Okay, that's not something that Japan enjoys, that's not something that India enjoys, that's not something that China enjoys. You're talking about enormous amounts of oil. Gold, you know, all of a sudden, less than a month after Mexico surrenders California to the United States, you have the discovery of gold here an enormous gold fine. 
So there are tremendous natural resources here. You have two oceans buffering it. So there are certain physical characteristics that, that certainly help as well. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a very large country. And on top of that, obviously, there's freedom, there's democracy. I, I, don't, I don't deny any of those things. It's certainly, lots of things have to go right for you to be this great. You know, it's not one thing or another. I mean, we all know it in startups. Lots of things have to work right. The idea has to be right number of ingredients, the team has to be right, number of ingredients have to come together, timing has to be right, and that's something that, that has gone right for America for a very, very long period of time. Final couple minutes together, uh, we're going to play a little game. Mm-hmm. I'm stealing this from a podcast I like. Um, it's called Overrated or Underrated. Oh I'm going to give you, you know the podcast, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you a concept, you tell me whether you think this is an overrated idea or an underrated idea. Mm-hmm. All right, let's start with, just make it simple, capitalism. <laughs> overrated, underrated. <laughs> I think it's, I, you know, I hate to be nuanced, but I think both underrated, overrated. I think, I think it's uh, underrated creatively, and I think it's the overrated as a cure for all things. Sports betting. Underrated. Go on, quickly. <laughs> I think, uh, well, I mean, I think it's, it's I, I think anytime, I, I tend to think about the world probabilistically, so sports betting has always helped me think about probabilities. So for instance, whenever you, we were talking about this earlier, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I never think what's going to happen. I always tend to think of it as like, how many different things can happen? In a possession of football, you have eight different things that can happen. Fumble, interception, touchdown, safety, you know, turnaround, downs, end of half, end of game, yep. punt, right? And so you tend to, I always tend to look at how many different scenarios are there and assign probabilities to all of them. What's the probability there's a nuclear war in the next 20 years? What's the probability of a president getting assassinated? What's the, so I always, it always helps me with mental models in terms of sports where it's highly deterministic, the variables are quite minimal, and you can assign probabilities to it. So I'm fun to watch football with. Here's the next one. Agriculture. Uh, underrated, massively. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's underrated massively, and I think, I mean, look at, look at this country's uh, obesity levels. I mean, look at, look at the way we've had... I think this is one of the other things as well, why it's underrated, is that we've concentrated on efficiency to such a degree um, that it's not effective. And I think there, there are two different words in the English language of what's effective, what's efficient. Some people are very efficient, some people are very effective. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, you know, markets have pushed efficiency so hard to get everything at such cheap levels that it's not effective for people. I think it's, you know, I think quality can increase. I think it's basically food in this country is an inferior good. Um, and I think that it, it, it certainly could move up the value chain quite dramatically. I think La- we have a real food crisis in this country. Last one, San Francisco. Underrated, it's magical. It's Underrated? It's okay. utterly beautiful. I live there, I live in Marin County. It's the most spectacular so you, place you, on earth. You feel like the perception of San Francisco has fallen Absolute, so much so absolutely. That, that it is now I was just underrated. flying over it today and I saw the Presidio and I saw the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw Marin County. I think the people that say it's overrated live in the peninsula, live next to Silicon Valley. Those people are, are themselves I think the, nat- the natural beauty in San Francisco is utterly spectacular. I think it's 30 minutes to wine country, two and a half hours to Tahoe. Give me a break. All right, underrated. All right, thank you so much. All right, excellent. Thank you.